Book two, chapter six, section two of Tasker Jevons, the real story by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Book two, her book, chapter six, section two. He said it was all very well for me. I was prejudiced. My sort of prejudice, I said, might work the other way. You must have been afraid, or you wouldn't have gone out to bring her back. Jevons was afraid himself, for that matter. When things got dangerous, he took her back to Bruges and put her in a pension to be safe from him. He looked up sharply. She never told me that, that he took her there to be safe from him. I don't suppose she knew. She was as innocent as all that. And how do you know? Because he told me so. I gave him something of what Jevons had told me, but not all. That, said the canon, seems to make him more credible. I pictured for him the night of Jevons' remorse. He said, that's the best thing I've heard about him yet. You believe him? I said, yes. The man is extremely sensitive and almost insanely frank. I let it sink in. Presently he owned that it was the platonic version of the affair that, as a man of the world, he had found it so hard to swallow. All that nonsense, you know, about the belfry. He meditated a while. Then he began to ask questions. Where does he come from? Who are his people? What do they do? I said his father was a registrar of births, marriages, and deaths in a village somewhere in Hertfordshire. And then, is he... is he very impossible? I said, no only from their point of view a little improbable he didn't press it well he said it looks as if he was inevitable i suppose we've got to make the best of him what do you want me to do i said i wanted him to ask them down very soon he said all right furnival i'll ask them down next week but if i do you must stop on and see me through i won't be left alone with him i stopped on playing chess with the cannon and lawn tennis with nora who was more than ever determined to beat me and on tuesday of the next week they came down the whitewashing of jevons had not been an easy matter it took such a lot of coats to make a satisfactory job of him and it was not a job i would have chosen but i was serving mrs jevons and if my service had demanded miracles i should have had to have worked them somehow that was all and perhaps it was a miracle to have turned jevons out as a morally presentable person according to the requirements of a cathedral close but up to that tuesday afternoon in august my private grievance against jevons remained what it had been in his absence even while i whitewashed him i could not extend a christian forgiveness and forbearance to jevons any more than mrs thesiger could i think i hated jevons i ought to have hated him by every glorious and manly code pagan or barbarous i ought to have hated him and i did every minute that he wasn't there he had made me a figure of preposterous suffering because of him i trailed a fatuous tragedy through the thesiger's house and over the green lawns of the close under the eyes of the young subalterns and of victoria and nora canon and mrs thesiger i didn't mind so much it mattered nothing that they were all extremely kind to me since my suffering was responsible for their kindness and jevons was responsible for my suffering well on that tuesday he arrived he was asked for a week and he stayed three days and in those three days i had forgiven him everything for the sake of his performance he arrived in the middle of a tennis party the thesigers hadn't meant to have a party 
the subalterns must have known that he was coming and turned up simply to look at him i wondered afterwards whether nora could have told them she was dangerously demure that afternoon i ought to have said that for the last two days the canon had been preparing himself for jevons by reading him he had ordered in defiance of his political principles the morning standard and i had found him reading jevons's novel and surrounded by numbers of the blue review which if you remember published the best of jevons's earlier work he had no difficulty in getting hold of them his youngest daughter had been able to supply him with more jevons than he wanted in fact in the study of tasker jevons the canon was weeks behind the rest of his acquaintance there was hardly a family in canterbury of any education in which tasker jevons was not by this time a household word the garrison club library had bought him in quantities the bookseller in the precincts did not stock him he was not allowed to but he could order him for you and did and the booksellers in the high street displayed him in their windows by the half-dozen i have forgotten in the blaze of his later fame that apart from this purely local reputation he passed in the provinces as a fair-sized celebrity even then only as jevons judged himself at every stage with accuracy he hadn't begun to take himself at all seriously yet so he arrived in a perfect simplicity without any of that rather dubious aplomb with which he tried to carry off his celebrity when it really came it was very nasty for him he had to come out of the house following viola and her mother all the way to the far end of the lawn where the canon was ready for him with a face which try as he would and he tried his hardest he could not unstiffen it must be said of the canon that he nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene but he had as jevons said afterwards rather too much the air of walking up to the gun's mouth and calling on us to observe how beautifully a christian could die and there was victoria standing beside the canon and holding herself well and colonel and mrs braithwaite beside victoria trying to look as if there was nothing unusual about jevons or the situation there was nora at the tennis net quivering with excitement and by the time jevons had caught up with his convoy there was mrs thesiger alongside the others turned round to present him and watching him as he came on viola had turned and was looking at him too and there were the subalterns at the tennis net with nora doing unnecessary things to the net and trying not to look at him i wondered how on earth will he carry it off how is he going to get across that tennis ground he was getting across it somehow holding himself not quite so well as victoria or the subalterns but still holding himself coming on a little flushed and twinkling and self-conscious but coming the situation was for him most horrible but it was worse for viola i wondered is she shivering all down her spine is she going to flinch why will she look at the poor chap and then i saw she was looking at him with a little tender smile a smile that helped him across that said come on come on it's difficult i know but you're doing it beautifully well so he was he was doing it more beautifully than the canon or any of them for that group on the lawn were like a rather eager rescue party holding out hands to a struggling swimmer in the social surf they expected him to struggle and he didn't he landed himself in the middle of them with an adroitness that put them in the wrong what's more he held his own when he got there he looked about as different from any of the men on that tennis ground as a man well could look 
He looked odd, and that saved him. They, with their distinction, had not achieved absolute difference from each other. His difference from all of them was so absolute that it was a sort of distinction in itself. As soon as he got there, Nora came up with the subalterns in tow. She made a little friendly rush at him. She said, I'm Nora, the youngest. I expect Viola's told you about me. She's told me lots about you. She meant well, dear child, but she overdid it. She hadn't allowed, none of us except Viola had allowed, for his appalling sensitiveness. The poor chap told me afterwards that he could bear up against the canon's stiff face and what he called Mrs. Thesiger's ladylike refinements of repudiation and the poker that Victoria had swallowed, but that that kid's kindness, coming on the top of it all, floored him. He took her hand, I think he squeezed it, and his mouth opened, but he couldn't speak. He just breathed hard and flushed furiously, and his eyes looked as if he were going to cry. But of course he didn't cry. He was, he said, far too much afraid of the subalterns. It was a good thing, perhaps, after all, that it took him that way. His emotion made him quiet and subdued. It toned him down, so that he started well from the very beginning. After tea, he recovered and talked to the colonel and the subalterns while the rest of us listened. He said, I remember that the building of dreadnoughts was of more importance to the country than disestablishment, and even more important than the building of dreadnoughts was the building of submarines. The submarine was the ship of the future. There should be, he said, at least fifty submarines for every dreadnought turned out. That made them all sit up. It was not a platitude in 1906, but a prophecy. The colonel and the subalterns hung on his words, and when the cannon saw them hanging, his mouth began to relax a little of its own accord. In his first hour, Jevons had scored notably. It was as if he had said to himself, I'll bring these people round, see if I don't. I give myself an hour. Dinner passed without any misadventure, but you could see that he was careful. Also, you could see by his twinkle that he was amusing himself by his own precautions, as if, again, he had said to himself, they're all expecting me to make noises over my soup and they'll be disappointed. I just won't make any. We had coffee in the garden afterwards, and it was then that the canon asked him what his politics were. Jevons said he had no politics, or rather he had a great many politics. He was a sort of socialist in times of peace and a red-hot imperialist in times of war and a tory for purposes of tariff reform and a liberal when it came to home rule and when the canon objected that you couldn't run a government on those lines little jevons told him that that was precisely how governments were run it was a fallacy to suppose that oppositions didn't rule and again he scored he did it all with a twinkling dimpling urbanity and deprecation as if the canon had been a beautiful lady he was paying court to as if he thought it was rather a pity that beauty should lower itself to talk politics but since he insisted on politics he should have them as if in short he loved the canon but didn't take him very seriously yes he certainly scored he gave viola no cause to flinch that evening comes back to me by bits it must have been that evening that the canon walked round the garden with me i see him walking round and round with nora hanging on to his arm teasing him and chattering i hear her crying out suddenly with no relevance hasn't he got stunning eyes daddy and the canon's saying that jevons's eyes would look better in a pair of earrings than in jevons's head and her answering wouldn't i like to wear them i see his little mock shiver 
as if he felt that those great chunks of unsuitable sapphire that had charmed viola across the channel and norah's funny face as she said oh come he isn't half bad that night he called me into the library when they had all gone to bed clearly he wanted to know how it had gone off how he in particular had behaved i assured him that his behaviour had been perfect and i asked him what he thought of jevons he said well he might be worse he might be much much worse he's a clever chap where does he get it all from but i noticed that the next day he shut himself up in his library all morning was silent at lunch and never emerged properly till dinner-time mrs thesiger also fought shy of her son-in-law nora and victoria took him by turns that day i noticed that he got on very well with nora she knocked balls over the net for him all morning he couldn't play but professed a great eagerness to learn in the afternoon victoria took him to look at the cathedral in the old quarters of the town in the evening after dinner we all sat out in the garden canon and mrs thesiger soon left us victoria followed them and viola and nora and jevons and i sat on till long after dark viola and nora i remember sat close together on the long seat under the elm tree jevons was on the other side of viola i sat on a cushion at her feet the night had a rhythm in it stillness and peace the cathedral chimes stillness and peace again and there was a smell of cut lawn grass with dew on it from the ground and of roses from the borders and of lichen and moss and crumbling mortar from the walls sometimes these smells pierced the peace like sounds and sometimes they gathered close and wrapped us like warmth then jevons spoke all this he said is very beautiful very beautiful indeed and viola sighed yes yes she said i suppose it is beautiful you know it is he said i know all right but i don't think i can see it as you do i've been shut up in it so long it's all this that you've taken me out of it's all this he said that's made you what you are it isn't this isn't really me it's just them i'm what i've made myself i'm what you've made me i'm uglier than they are i'm uglier than anything here but i'm much much more alive you surely don't suggest said jevons that i've made you uglier you've made me stronger and cleverer and bigger ever so much bigger than i was much better in every way i said than your youngest sister here hasn't he poor little nora i didn't mean that you beast fernie of course i didn't jimmy what did i mean he said nothing but i heard an inarticulate murmur and i saw that in the darkness his arm went round her and drew her closer and that god forgive him was his heaviest score up till now in two days he had absorbed the canterbury atmosphere he was in it in it as i wasn't and couldn't be and the next day canon and mrs thesiger took him in hand by turns the canon showed him the town all over again all morning and in the afternoon mrs thesiger showed him the cathedral all over again and took him with her to the service and all dinner-time jevons was very pensive and subdued after dinner the canon talked to jevons about his novel he had retired into his library all afternoon in order to finish it he asked him why he had chosen an ugly subject when he might have found a beautiful one and jevons was more pensive than ever he said well that's a question he couldn't tell the canon why he'd chosen it he couldn't disclose to him his plan of campaign you see sir i haven't seen many beautiful things he still pondered 
then he said very slowly as if he dragged it out of himself with difficulty that book was written written in my head before i knew my wife you could literally see his score running up by nine o'clock the canon and mrs thesiger had roped him into their game of whist i sat out with viola and nora in the garden when nora told me that she thought jimmy was a dear she was the only one of them that called him jimmy about ten o'clock next morning viola came to me and asked me to go up to jimmy in his room he wanted to speak to me i found him packing packing with a sort of precise and concentrated fury he was going going up to town he had torn through canterbury eaten his way through canterbury through the beauty and peace of it he had absorbed and assimilated it in three days and he had had enough if he stayed in another hour the beauty and the peace of it would kill him the canon's beauty he said was adorable so was mrs thesiger's but if i stay here i shall ruin it i can't he said go on giving that dear old clergyman clergyman's sore throat i frighten him so that he can't sing he doesn't know what to do with me or say to me he doesn't know what to call me he can't call me jevons and he won't call me jimmy and he knows it would be ridiculous to call me james besides he agitates me and makes me drop my h's so i've had a wire you'll explain to him the sort of wire i've had and viola i said is she going too no viola's going to stay till our week's up by that time she'll be bored stiff and longing to get back to me he went and i'm not at all sure that he didn't score by going and that night and the next and the next i thought of little jevons alone in his little house in hampstead lying all by himself in his four-post bed between his rosebud chintz curtains and under his rosebud chintz tester and saying to himself that he had scored end of book two chapter six recording by expatriate in bangor maine